The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we're heading deep into Nazi Germany, where Frank Griffin, the grandson of Jack Griffin, the original Invisible Man, is on a top-secret mission for the U.S. government. With the aid of his grandfather's invisibility serum, as well as the assistance of a beautiful German agent, he must retrieve a list of German and Japanese spies operating in the United States and prevent a surprise attack on New York City. But not without having a little fun at the Nazis' expense, of course. With a cunning SS officer and a sadistic Japanese baron hot on his tail, it'll take everything Frank has to achieve his objective and make it out of Germany. Germany alive. Join us in some Nazi ass kicking as we discuss Invisible Agent. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive, it's alive, it's alive. I tell you, I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf. By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. He went for a little wolf. He could his face. <laughs> Welcome to The Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spectacular characters and films in the Universal Studios classic monster series. Today we're talking about the fourth installment in the Invisible Man series, 1942's Invisible Agent. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is my co-host and fellow Nazi hunter monster Mike Manzi. How are you, Mike? Good to be here, Dan. You know, from this distance, I might not be a Frederick Zoller, but I am a Frank Griffin, so watch out. (laughs) Okay, so... At this point, America had just been thrust into another world war, and Hollywood was in full-blown propaganda mode. Suddenly, everybody wanted to cash in on the action, with all of the major studios releasing a whole slew of films that promoted classic American ideals and took advantage of the real-life villains that existed overseas. And horror films were not immune to this. Before long, there was a strange subgenre of wartime horror movies where, you know, mad scientists were moonlighting for the Third Reich, or, or maybe they were working for our side, trying to convince our government that the key to winning the war was an army of werewolves. You know, there are also things like Nazi agents pretending to be headless ghosts and other ridiculous concepts like that. And fortunately for us, this marriage of war and horror has never truly ended. I mean, we're still seeing stuff like this today with Frankenstein's army, Dead Snow, Overlord. And there's even a fantastic segment of the new Creepshow series where some U.S. prisoners of war become werewolves to fight their Nazi captors. But in 1942, Invisible Agent was Universal's contribution to that subgenre. Now, the propaganda is unmistakable, and it's not quite as polished as it could have been, but man, is Invisible Agent fun. Now, Mike, what did you think of this film? I'm assuming this was a first time for you. Yeah, this was most definitely a first time watch for me, and I was kind of as blown away by this as you can be, given what it is. Like, I just had a grand old time. I really had no idea what to expect, and I didn't need much more than the Invisible Man is fighting Nazis. Right when I started it, I think I texted you Invisible Bastards. 
because <laughs> this has like a lot of that same kind of absurdity going on about war and secrets and double agents and plans going awry, all that kind of thing mixed with like larger than life characters. But I was actually very surprised as we're recording this in real time. We just recently observed the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the anniversary of that. And it's in this movie. Like I was pretty shocked to see that they would use real world events so much or like put it right there. That was very surprising, but welcoming. And then of, of course, like how much they are parodying the Nazi party in this and you know, it almost gets to a level of Hogan's Heroes at one yep. point and everything. Yep. But it was just very surprising. And it's not a perfect movie by any means. It's not the greatest film. And it's and it's by no means a monster movie, unless you count the Nazis as the monsters, of course, but not in the context that we're describing. Aside from all that, though, like, yeah, I, I thought they did a, a really good job with it. Yeah, I mean, this is like another example of, of Universal taking the Invisible Man idea and sort of attributing it to another genre film. We had sort of a a science fiction horror film with that original. We had like a film noir with The Invisible Man Returns. Uh, Invisible Woman is straight up slapstick comedy. But here we've got like wartime action thriller. And I think this proves that this sort of invisibility gimmick is, is applicable to like any number of genres, right? But this movie is cheap as cheap entertainment can get. I mean, it is really no more complicated than an invisible man, you know, spies on Nazis and, and kicks some ass. Based on the simplicity of that idea, I think it absolutely delivers. I think if you try to dissect it too much, it's really not going to hold up to any sort of scrutiny. But it is super fun if you go into it just wanting to see an invisible man kick some Nazi ass. I was very surprised. Like like you say, how it's this genre hopping idea that has been working, you know, for the most part, very well wherever it lands. Yeah. And like, it just makes total sense that, you know, you would use this as a spy thing. And those are my favorite war films. Don't get me wrong. I like big battles and we get some cool battle action in this and and other Mm -hmm. fights and things. But I really do sort of prefer all of this sneaking around stuff. So it's just like a great marriage of ideas. Yeah. Now, the thing that sort of surprised me about this when I first saw it is that, you know, like I'm used to stuff like this now. We're so far removed from World War Two. We kind of can have a lot more fun with some of these things. But in 1942, like we had just been attacked by the Japanese. I mean, this movie was released in July of 1942. So we're not even a full year after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Nazi Germany is a very real, very serious thing. And we're already poking fun at Nazis and, you know, the Japanese. And I would have thought it would have taken a lot longer for filmmakers to feel comfortable having this amount of fun with some pretty evil folks, you know? Yeah, I I always think about Jack Kirby where he was talking where he's like, until I could fight, I would make these comics about the Nazis and the Japanese and we would make fun of them and show how sort of feeble they were. And so I almost feel like it's not that they're just making fun of them, but that it's like a bullying kind of thing on screen, right? right? Like they're cementing the Nazi as like a certain stereotype and and rightfully. And so in this movie, you are going to get doppelgangers like Peter Lorre looks a lot like Tojo. You know, Edward Bromberg is kind of playing a, a Himmler. And it's weird, like, Cedric Hardwick is Goebbels. Like, it's not hidden at all. They have never been kind of coy about any of that. And I find that brash and part of the war. I think that was part of the propaganda. And that worked very well on people. 
We're going to get into it, but I think a, a lot of it has to do with the fact that Kurt Siodmak wrote the screenplay for this. I mean, a number of the people who were involved in this production were European and Jewish. So, you know, they had their own agenda. You know, it wasn't necessarily about waving the American flag and promoting American patriotism and that sort of thing. Like we see a lot of that today. But this film, in, in a lot of ways, was created by angry European Jews. And I think that that would explain why the Nazis are portrayed in a sort of keystone cop light. They're, they're not here to necessarily be like, yeah, go America. More so, they're trying to undercut the Nazis and, and also the Japanese at the same time. I think that is a big reason why the movie goes in that direction as opposed to what we might expect with, like I said, the more patriotic flag-waving kind of angle. Yeah, and Carl Lemley himself, like, very well known for rescuing hundreds of Jews before the Nazis got to him and, like, bringing them to right. America and giving them jobs and setting them up and giving them security. And so, like, I feel like for Universal to, like, put their foot down in this movie is, like, just, like, an extra special thing, knowing sort of the history of the studio and, and what the Lemleys had to go through, all the stuff that Carl Lemley did to save a lot of people you know, during the war. So it's just very interesting how it's all coming together. Yeah, definitely. All right, so let's get into production here. So Universal had announced this film in early 1942. Right after Pearl Harbor happened, Universal really wanted to capitalize on that and incorporate and like sort of springboard off of that and do something with their Universal monsters in response to the attack. The film was announced in early 1942, originally called The Invisible Spy. Of course, that was changed to Invisible Agent prior to its release. They had Frank Lloyd and Jack Skirbel, fresh off of Alfred Hitchcock's Saboteur, to produce. However, Skirbel dropped out and was replaced by George Wagner as associate producer. By this time, Frank Lloyd had already become a pretty accomplished director. He had won an Oscar in 1933 for the film Cavalcade, and he had made 1935's Mutiny on the Bounty with Charles Lawton and Clark Gable, and 1938's If I Were King, written by Preston Sturges. Not to put too fine a point on it, he was kind of a big deal at the time. How he ended up producing Invisible Agent is really anyone's guess. I couldn't really find anything specific as to why he was the guy brought on to produce this project. So I've read some suggestions that with H.G. Wells still popular among the movie-going public, Universal probably felt a little confident in treating this one like a minor A picture instead of their usual B movies. So they outfitted it with a big-name producer and promoted it like a serious wartime drama. I could see how that might be the explanation for it, but I, I really couldn't find anything solid to point to here. In the director's seat, we've got Edwin L. Marin. He was mostly a hack filmmaker. His career is littered with a lot of mediocre work. Uh, a handful of his films that are worth mentioning, though, are 1933's pre-Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes film A Study in Scarlet, an adaptation of A Christmas Carol in 1938, and what might be the most relevant for this show is the time he directed Bela Lugosi in 1933's The Death Kiss. I actually quite like what he's doing here. Now, maybe it, some of it could also be attributed to superstar producer. But, you know, once again, like this film is filled with very colorful characters, but everybody's on the same page and they all feel pretty well fleshed out. So it's kind of surprising to hear that he's not a little more well known, but good job as far as I'm concerned. You know, we don't get a lot of that real crazy, what we've come to know from universal horror look by any means but there is that one interrogation scene towards the end that is very German expressionistic so it's in his bag of tricks here and there but I thought he did well yeah I gotta think with the producer and the the screenwriter and this this cast of characters that 
I feel like just about anybody could have made a half decent film in the director's seat. Like a lot of that work, a lot of that heavy lifting was being done by other people. I can't really say what to attribute specifically to Edward L. Marin. All I really know is that like he really wasn't a very noteworthy filmmaker before or after this. So I think he, maybe he's just kind of like coasting through and, and everybody else is kind of bringing their A game. So like I said, the screenplay written by Kurt Siodmak, as I mentioned before, he was a German Jew who had fled Germany following an anti Semitic tirade by Joseph Goebbels before making his way to the U.S. in 1937. So let's get into the cast. We've got John Hall as our invisible agent, Frank Raymond slash Griffin. After being discovered by a talent scout thanks to his incredibly good looks, Hall began his career acting under his given name, Charles Loker, taking pretty much any job he could get, landing supporting roles in a variety of westerns and adventure films. At one point, he changed his name to Lloyd Crane before finally settling on John Hall. He bounced around from studios to studio, making films with monogram pictures, 20th Century Fox, Major Pictures, RKO, and MGM, where Samuel Goldwyn gave him a major role in 1937's The Hurricane. Now, in the early 40s, MGM agreed to share Hall's contract with Universal, where he, of course, started in Invisible Agent, and then later in The Invisible Man's Revenge, before becoming a popular screen partner with Maria Montez in a number of exotic adventure films, beginning with 1942's Arabian Nights. His career like as I read through it not unlike Lon Chaney Jr. in that like he just kind of went through a couple different name changes took like basically whatever the studios would throw at him of course he didn't have his father's name to fall back on so yeah he's just like a working man's actor I think I read somewhere that he really just did it for the money it wasn't so much about the craft of acting so yeah he's just happy to take whatever role he could get we don't really get to see him all that much in this, but that's par for the course when you're playing invisible person, no matter who you are. But I feel like he's in it much more than the rest of them got a chance to be. And early on in the movie, I felt like he had kind of brought like this kind of Christopher Reeves energy. He's got like this tall, lean, heroic stature. And yeah, did he also play the invisible man parts? Do you have any info on that? Any intel on that? Well, to my knowledge, he did. I mean, there are a couple moments in the film where the effects work is a little bit dodgy and you can see his face. So I've read nothing to indicate that he didn't do his own Invisible Man work. Okay, and he's got a nice voice. It's not extremely distinct per se, but it's definitely a, a soothing sort of room tone. I don't know how, right? Like his, yeah. whatever his voice is when he's not exerting is very calming. So I guess that's like kind of nice. I think he's perfectly fine in this role. I think any problems that I have with the character stem more from the screenplay. But I think given the material he's, he's got to work with, I think he does a perfectly fine job. I can see why he was popular in these sorts of roles. He's tall, handsome, uh, in great shape. He's got charisma to him. So yeah, I think he's, uh, he's perfectly fine here. Now, I mentioned he's in The Invisible Man's Revenge as well, which is the direct follow-up to this one. But memory serves, he plays an entirely different character. So he's not coming back as Frank Griffin. He'll be playing a different sort of character. So I'm interested to revisit that one and, and see how his performance there contrasts with this one. Next, we got Ilana Massey as the German agent Maria Sorensen. I believe you mean Bridget von Hammerschmack, <laughs> as you pointed out to me. Let's just break the fourth wall for a second. Like, I sent you a lot of pictures between watching this and recording this because I was just like so many references, so many. And then you sent me back one of 
of her next to Diane Kruger. And I was like, I, I missed that one. That's a great one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She very much has like the Diane Kruger vibes from Inglorious Bastards. Like, I think you had implied that Tarantino may have watched this movie while in pre-production for Inglorious Bastards. I believe that's probably right. You know, I, I feel like there's enough similarities here that it's plausible. Yeah, I'm not necessarily saying he, he cribbed from this, but he's known to crib from everything. And, he, yeah. and I'm sure he watched every World War II movie there was at the time. And this is only an hour and 22 minutes of his time. I'm sure he watched it like twice or something. Yeah. <laughs> At the time, she was billed as the new Dietrich. She came to Hollywood from Hungary. I couldn't really find many specifics about her career prior to The Invisible Man. But I know that over the course of her career, she had become an accomplished performer on stage, screen, and radio, appearing in the Siegfried Follies in 1943 before returning to the Universal Monsters, playing Baroness Frankenstein in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. Oh, cool. So yeah, we're going to see her again before too long. I think we've got one movie in between this and Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. I really enjoyed her accent. You know, sometimes sometimes people go overboard and it this yeah. sounds it was like a very nice natural accent whereas like I could you could still understand every single word. I guess got to say I believe she's pretty much the only lady in this movie. Yes. And she has like so much to do and she pulls it all off and she has to be like tough, vulnerable, scared. She has to go through everything. And she pulls it all off. I was a very cool character. Yeah, I was like, if you have to be the only woman in the movie, at least they sort of gave her like four or five people's worth of things to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this is one of those rare instances where I'm kind of thankful for a weak-ass protagonist. I think in a lot of ways, Frank is just not a, a great man to lead us through this movie as the hero. Yeah, yeah. We'll get into that. He's, he's yeah. not a spy. <laughs> no. And, and so I think that because of that, she gets a lot more to do and in a series of movies where so far we've been very short on really great female characters she's great i mean she's awesome she gets a lot of stuff to do as you said and so i'm really grateful for this movie if only for that uh, she does a great job here and i wish she was in more movies like i wish this character was in more movies like i would have loved to have seen a spinoff from this where she gets to come back in the next invisible man movie but you know they decided to go in a different direction but i am grateful to see her be so so awesome in this and then we get to see her again in a Frankenstein movie too so definitely one of the stronger performers here I can't help but wonder if this is some kind of sorry for the last one sorry for invisible woman <laughs> <laughs> because like if she was the invisible woman in this movie unstoppable super spy like she could really if she wanted to probably take over the world yeah, I don't know that this was necessarily a legitimate atonement for the Invisible Woman because she is the victim of some misogyny in this as well with the wolf whistle and, and other things. But she does give it back. Okay, so next we've got Sir Cedric Hardwick, who's no stranger to this show. We've seen him in The Invisible Man Returns and in The Ghost of Frankenstein. Here he plays Conrad Stelfer, an SS officer. It's a role he almost seems born to play. I really liked him in his villain role in The Invisible Man Returns. I really love him playing a Nazi here he just is such a great villain you're so right cedric hardwick is like the perfect freaking nazi like he is yeah. so frightening and so on point and like the way he smokes he smokes the cigarette like mm -hmm, a nazi mm -hmm. perfectly he's threatening and like he doesn't seem like he should be and he feels like a guy who's been like pushed around or like has been bullied and is like trying to get back at, at the world like i've just draw so much 
from his performance. It's so precise, and uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. He's the true monster here. For sure, and I, I love the way his performance is sort of understated, um, as opposed to playing a big, over-the-top, Nazi officer. He decides to play, I mean, to compare it to Inglorious Bastards again, he's kind of playing it the way Christoph Waltz plays his character in Inglorious Bastards, where he's more terrifying in that he's calm for most of this movie, right? He really doesn't lose his shit ever. I, I just love the, the subtlety in his performance here. I don't know that Cedric Hardwick has it in him necessarily to play a big over-the-top character, which is maybe why he's so perfectly cast here. He's just, again, more terrifying playing it subtly. But yeah, it was really fun to watch him appear alongside the next actor in the cast, Peter Lorre. Up until now, I feel like he's been doing a great job in these movies, but I don't know that he's necessarily been engaged with the material. Here, I feel like he's really having fun acting with Peter Lorre, who maybe he saw as like a more legitimate acting partner. And so like when they're in scenes together and it's just the two of them, Hardwick appears to be having more fun. It's interesting about Cedric Hardwick's sort of reserved acting style because we got a lot of that as Frankenstein right when the monster's like right in his face and all that kind of thing and I feel like it works better here for me like I kind of want a more manic Frankenstein Dr. Frankenstein in here is just like scarier because like you don't know really like what's going to set him off if anything but we finally get Peter Lorre yeah and an invisible agent of all things (laughs) not only that he's playing the Ronald Lacey role from Raiders of the Lost Ark. I lost my mind about that. Yeah, Peter Lorre, he's an iconic Hungarian character actor, might be the biggest name we ever really encounter on this show. We have mentioned him before in a previous episode. He was approached to play the title role in Son of Frankenstein, but at the time, he really wasn't interested in, I think the quote was, he wasn't interested in playing another meanie. And then he decided he wanted to go in a different direction, and that's about when he started his um, Mr. Moto series of movies. Now we finally get Peter Lorre in a Universal Monster movie. It's Invisible Agent of all things. And he's playing a Japanese baron, which, uh, you know, has its own set of issues. But ignoring the uh, the racial insensitivity for a second, I think that this role, aside from that, is perfectly suited to Peter Lorre. I mean, he's such a great bad guy in just about everything he does. Always slimy. So before we get too much into the role here, I, do, I just want to go through a little bit. Now, like obviously, one of the biggest names we're ever going to talk about, we could probably do an entire episode on him if we wanted to but considering he's not really a major player in the Universal Monsters outside of this one movie I'll just go through like a brief little synopsis of his career up to this point by 1942 he was already a well-known actor internationally he had starred in Fritz Lang's M in 1931 playing a child killer before he fled Germany just as Hitler was rising to power and then once he ended up in Hollywood he worked with Hitchcock in The Man Who Knew Too Much in 1934 he starred in a series of films for 20th Century Fox playing Japanese detective Mr. Moto. It was also around that time he was approached by Universal for the lead role in Son of Frankenstein. In 1937, he successfully tested for the role of Quasimodo in what was an aborted production of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And finally, he established his on-screen dynamic with Humphrey Bogart and Sidney Greenstreet in The Maltese Falcon in 1941. The three would be reunited later in 1942 with Casablanca and again in 1944 with Passage to Marseille. That's just the cliff notes of Peter Lorre. Again, we could go on and on about him, but I think that he's, again, perfectly suited to this character. So that's Peter Lorre. 
So if I may, Dan, if I can just sort of expose my ignorance for a minute here. But it wasn't until we were at the Japanese embassy that I realized he was playing a Japanese person. Because I just didn't pick up on it. But if you look at like pictures of Tosho, he's got the same glasses. He's got like the bald hair. Like it is sort of the caricature of... The, that they were making fun of the Japanese men at the time to wear those types of glasses, I think was part of it. But like, I just kept thinking Raiders of the Lost Ark about this guy, that he is just a creepy Nazi man. But now, does that mean the guy from Raiders is also a Japanese stereotype? Because if you look at him again, it, yeah. it might be. And my whole world was just turned upside down by this character showing up in this movie played by Peter Lorre, no less. So... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know that Tote is Japanese in Raiders. It's subtle. Peter Lorre, for the most part, looks like himself here. There's not a whole lot of effort put into making him appear Japanese. And he's not doing a an insensitive accent or anything. You know, he's speaking in his own speaking voice. Correct. But they have done some makeup work to his eyes to make him appear more Japanese. They did similar work on the Mr. Moto movies where he was also playing Japanese. I think they in, in the Mr. Moto movies, they also gave him like a, a gap between his teeth. In terms of offensive stereotypes, this is on the far subtle end. It could have been much worse, of course, but here he's he's mostly looking like Peter Lorre. I think considering this film was a response to the attack on Pearl Harbor, it would have been strange if there were there was no Japanese presence. So that was why he plays this sort of character, because he could easily have played another Nazi. Um, that might have made more narrative sense. But um, with Pearl Harbor, I, I don't see them ignoring the Japanese here. For what it's worth, I do think Peter Lorre plays a great villain here, and then the, and the stuff they give him to do, he's very natural in, in, in this role. So so the, another Hungarian character actor, we've got J. Edward Bromberg as Carl Heiser. Bromberg's unfortunate claim to fame was being part of the Hollywood blacklist when he was accused before the House on American Activities Committee in 1951. Oh, no. I loved this guy. <laughs> yeah. I loved his performance. That's a shame. Prior to that, he had begun at New York's group theater before moving to Hollywood, where he appeared in numerous bit roles, usually as an ethnic character of some sort or an eccentric European, even appearing alongside Peter Lorre in Mr. Moto Takes a Chance, and also with Warner Oland, our original werewolf in London, in the movie Charlie Chan on Broadway, because remember, Warner Oland was also Charlie Chan. After he was blacklisted, he moved to England, where he ultimately died of a heart attack while working on the London play The Biggest Thief in Town. Being blacklisted was basically the end of his career. I don't think he was ever able to rebound from that. So just an unfortunate bit of trivia there. And I believe after he died, he was also outed by Elia Kazan before the House Un-American Activities Committee as well. So Elia Kazan, of course, a controversial figure in in film history. But uh, yeah, so it sucks because he's a great character actor. He's another one of those character actors who at the time was playing sort of these racially insensitive roles. But I do think he is great here. I think he's having a lot of fun as Heiser. He plays the role perfectly. He reminds me a little also of modern actor Dan Fogel. He's in like the Fantastic Beasts movies. Yeah, he and Cedric Hardwick are like this, they're like this evil Abbott and Costello. Like, yeah. It's so crazy when I put that together. I mean, I know they're also supposed to be kind of like versions of, you know, the Third Reich leaders and things like that. But like you cannot when, you know, especially... Bromberg's performance like you cannot not see 
like the slapstick involved. It's terrific. Yeah, I mean, anytime the film wants to get into the the sort of slapsticky elements, he's always the target. He plays comedy really well, and I think that you know, just being a character actor, he's naturally suited for those sorts of moments. So, Evil Abbott and Costello, I think, is a great way to describe these two characters. Yeah. So finally, we've got Albert Basserman as the coffin maker Arnold Schmidt. He's not a very major player in this film, but I found his history to be really interesting and, and, and thought he was worth mentioning here. Now, Basserman was a German stage and screen actor, often considered one of the greatest German-speaking actors of his generation. He appeared in many German films during the silent era, and in 1938, he made his way to the U.S., where he became a successful character actor learning his lines phonetically, as he knew very little English. In 1940, he appeared in Alfred Hitchcock's Foreign Correspondent, which earned him his one and only Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. I love him in this role, this little bit that they give him to do, but I, I just, I never would have guessed based on this one movie that this was an Academy Award nominated actor who really didn't speak English. For a guy who learned his lines phonetically, I totally bought it. Hook, line, and sinker here. Oh, absolutely. Never did I doubt that he couldn't speak English you know, off screen or anything like I absolutely bought it. But I also in the back of my mind was thinking like, I bet this guy is like some very obscure actor, you know, that they pulled out from somewhere, you know, and it's, I'm sure with like the lady who plays the maid as well. I was like, she's just got like one scene, but I bet her credentials make her way overqualified to be in just that one shot right. of the movie kind of thing. And he's got like that amazing scene towards the end with the interrogation Yes. I agree. Cool cool character as like the little go-between and good idea. No one would ever suspect the coffin maker, I guess, right? You got to keep <laughs> him alive and around. Like, why is he going to screw up anything? You got to always need coffins. Right. It almost felt kind of like a, a, an American Western, right? Because you got a character with a name and pretty important role who's making coffins. You know, you usually just see coffin makers in Westerns. But um, I love seeing him, him pop up here. Yeah. And just that constant reminder, too, of like death. Yeah. It had like a horror movie edge to it. Yeah. So we've got John P. Fulton back for special effects. He was once again nominated for an Oscar for his work here, but lost to the Paramount film Reap the Wild Wind. Compared to other effects work that we've seen him do, specifically with the Invisible Man series of films, this simultaneously has some really great work, but also some not so great work. There are some moments where we clearly see John Hall. We can see all of the seams. There's, again, I've mentioned before, there's one specific moment, like when he's putting the cold cream on his face, where you can see his eyes. And and it's possible that this movie was just rushed through production and Fulton just wasn't given the adequate time to perfect these special effects. But I do think some of these effects do really hold up, particularly like towards the beginning of the movie with our invisible man drinking a cup of coffee and then the whole fun and games element with Heiser, you know, with the, with the dinner scene. I think a lot of that stuff is really great. But yeah, the seams here are worse than in previous Invisible Man films, unfortunately. So I'm not entirely surprised he didn't win the Oscar for this one yeah it seems like maybe more of like an honorary nomination because like oh we gotta nominate an invisible man movie because they're doing it again i i kind of agree it felt a little like they might have gotten kind of tired or cut some corners but still idea wise they had some kind of cool and creative ideas some things that didn't make a whole lot of sense right were sort of fun to see like i didn't expect the vanisher from deadpool 2 to make an appearance early <laughs> on when he's skydiving out of the airplane I didn't think Chevy Chase was going to show up from Memoir on the Invisible <laughs> Man when the cold cream gets applied. So lots of interesting surprises there to go see like these ideas have been done before. I had no idea and that they would be in, in this spy movie like very fun. 
Yeah. Some of the best stuff in this movie, effects-wise, is stuff that doesn't involve John Hall at all. Like, for example, towards the beginning, like when he parachutes into Germany, when he's hiding in that barn, he unhooks himself from the parachute, and then he's kind of like walking around in the second floor of that barn through the hay. I think a lot of those effects were done really well. I'm still not entirely sure how they were accomplished. So the effects are best when John Hall is not involved in them. With a budget of over $322,000, production officially began on April 22nd, 1942, and it wrapped up in late May, releasing in July. It became the highest grossing Invisible Man sequel to date, grossing just over $1 million, which is crazy. Wow. I was like, did you really say a million dollars for back then? Like, that sounds like a blockbuster. In 1942 dollars, they spent $322,000 and then grossed over a million. You know, if you think about this as a modern film, there's no way we're not getting a sequel to this. Although the sequel, I think, would be a direct continuation these days, not just another separate Invisible Man story. But like this thing was a huge moneymaker for Universal. And I I do think to some degree them capitalizing on World War II had something to do with it. I think the audiences at the time would, would have been like head over heels to go see a movie that like stuck it to the Nazis and the Japanese, you know, so a lot of that that attitude was was prevalent in our country. So I can't see why this movie wouldn't be super successful. You're right. Like they would have watched Dracula fight the Nazis. It wouldn't have worked as well, but like they still would have gone. (laughs) Yeah, exactly right. Just a couple tidbits before we get into the movie itself. I read that Alana Massey uh, apparently, quote, disliked the film so much that she can scarcely remember what it was about and, quote, can't remember what her role in this film was. Really? Because I was like doing some digging and I was like trying to see maybe she was based on someone. And like there was a, a female spy during World War II named Virginia Hall. And one of her aliases was Marie. So like hmm. I was like, was she based on that maybe? There's that did that come up somewhere in the writing room or something so i'd have thought that she would have thought this was a pretty fun movie to make but i guess not for somebody who presumably was a a serious actor doing something like this might have been might have been beneath her you know in some regard we often think about horror films as being like a good actors doing horror films as, as sort of slumming it so in this case maybe that's how she viewed it but it's unfortunate because i do think she's great in this as we've discussed it's like go have a cigarette with peter laurie and let him i'm sure he'll change your mind so also there was supposedly a scene in the in the movie where frank literally kicks hitler in the ass but it was cut out i know how great would that have been it was cut out due to a hollywood edict that prohibited making enemy dictators the target of personal attacks i mean it was a different time there were rules in the 1940s it's true yeah they mean they drop his name as much as possible they they do the salute like every two minutes i'm not sure at some points who this is propaganda for (laughs) but no seriously though like it's a constant reminder like that's the guy that's the guy like we got to get that guy Yeah, again, it was a different time. The 1940s, there were still rules in war. And also keep in mind, like I'm just thinking about this off the top of my head, you know, the the atrocities of World War II hadn't been discovered yet. So at this time, Hitler would have been seen as like an ambitious dictator, which is horrible enough, but like the true horrifying aspects of World War II were still in the dark. So I could see why Universal would want to maintain some level of respect for another world leader. Because these days we know what was going on in parts of Europe with the extermination of the Jews and other minority groups. And so we have no problems showing Hitler being 
machine gunned in the face. Right. Yeah. Well, that war is over. <laughs> right. I'm only guessing as to why this this sort of thing would have been in place. I can't speak with any sort of authority on it, but like that's my supposition as to why they would have felt this way about a scene like that. I wonder how like the comics industry like Captain America got punching Hitler in the face on the cover in 1941 and then you can't like kick him in the balls on screen. <laughs> That's another good point. I hadn't thought about that. So yeah, you do have Captain America literally punching Hitler in the face. In light of that, then I really have no idea why they would have felt this way and, and cut that scene. But um, it would have been a great scene. Okay, so I think that's, that's about all I've got in terms of pre-production. Let's get into the movie itself. All right, so we open again with our Superman theme Universal logo before these opening credits, which are maybe the least inspiring opening credits for an Invisible Man film to date. Just pretty standard credits with a silhouetted city in the background, no movement whatsoever, which is unfortunate because I loved those earlier opening credits where like the title would dissolve in and like reveal itself in a really cool way. So Dan, I accidentally pressed play on The Invisible Man Returns and the credits started rolling and I was like, ooh, we're getting cool credits again. And I was like, oh, man, I pressed play on the wrong movie. <laughs> the movie opens. We don't really know what city we're in. It's somewhere in America, but it's definitely a city. And we're outside of this print shop and we've got our, our main villains here. We don't know who they are yet, but we've got Cedric Hardwick and Peter Lorre standing outside of Frank Raymond's print shop. Just a fun little detail here that I love in particular is that the Oregon State is hosting Duke in the Rose Bowl. I'm a Duke fan, so go Blue Devils. Was there any other relevance to the Rose Bowl? Because it's like 20 years old by now. I, I was like, why is this? Is this just supposed to cement us in a certain time? Like, did that game actually happen? Can we actually tell what day this movie takes place? Yeah, so I don't think the game actually happened as it is sort of described here, but I think mentioning it at all is meant to tell us that we're in like December because the bowl games are coming up. They're traditionally played like around Christmas and New Year's. So I think that gives us a time to set this story. So yeah, with it being set at this time of the year, I think it would tell the audience that, okay, we're in December, Pearl Harbor is probably coming. Yeah, you know what happened. So these men enter the shop and pretend to want to order some sort of paper product. And it's all under the guise of letting Frank Raymond know that they know who he really is. He's the grandson of Jack Griffin, the original Invisible Man, and they are there to purchase his invisibility serum. Now, why... Frank has this serum to begin with is never really explained. The whole family history is sort of glossed over. I mean, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense as to why he would have it, but he does. I, I was wondering about that too. And so like, I just strained to come up with something. I was like, well, if he's into the printing business, like that's his vocation, he's a printer. Maybe he found the diary at some point and he needed to preserve it, you know, because of his like appreciation of paper and the printed word and all. It's like a document. So yeah, it, it makes no sense why, <laughs> but I'm too distracted by like this crew of Gestapo Nazi men, like, and to find out later that two of these guys are like the head guys, like to find out that they personally went out on this mission is sort of even more foreboding. But like this whole sequence 
is very tense, like right from the get-go. Oh yeah, I love this. Uh, Cedric Hardwick is doing the interrogation. Peter Lorre is like in the background playing with this like industrial paper cutter. He's already like creeping the hell out of me in the first couple of minutes. And I know exactly the kind of damage that can do because I don't know about you, but we used to have those in our little like art room studios in grade school. So they would trust like- Oh God fourth graders to cut large pieces of paper just put it under the paper cutter oh that giant machete over there (laughs) (laughs) sure kid i don't know if we ever had anything this heavy duty in my elementary schools but that's crazy yeah there's no there's no doubt in my mind that this thing could take your hand or fingers off but what's interesting to me in this scene is that it does appear that if frank were to sell them the formula that it would be okay right like i don't necessarily believe that they're going to kill him regardless these are the the top guys right so they're gonna try and maybe keep a low profile i don't know it's hard to say right like you feel like they almost want to turn him right because they're so like they are really coming in the exception of peter laurie who we come to find has sort of his own motives to a degree like he's got his own set of orders but they are trying to like smooth talk him which i wasn't expecting you know they could have just come right in there and beaten him or something but like they're like no we know who you are and like all this stuff and it's like this game it's like this cool little cat and mouse kind of thing until they get his hand in the vice yeah, no, this is, a, this is a hell of a way to kick off this movie. As Frank starts to resist, they begin to get more forceful, right? And of course, it's not long before Frank's hand ends up in that paper cutter. And so faced with either losing his hand or his fingers, he relents and agrees to give them the formula that they are after. And so he goes to his desk and he has this really cool like hidden drawer which I don't think I've ever really seen a hidden drawer like that before. No, I, I think um, the same carpenter that made all of the Frankenstein furniture, like he got it, right. he got it at maybe one of the castle yard sales or something. And so as Frank reaches down into the drawer, he swings it up into the face of the guy behind him and in a pretty classic display of American masculinity just sort of punches his way out I think he chucks a chair through the front plate glass window yeah he's full-on Steve Rogers yo hell yeah realistically I think that he gets away a little too easily but yeah he kicks a bunch of ass Akito and Stuffer jump out the front window and they take off and we cut to a scene where Frank is now in like a meeting with some top American brand yeah i feel like he went to like the american embassy or something well i mean it's if we're set in america yeah he would be at like some government office somewhere yeah i mean now now the united states government is interested in buying this invisibility serum i feel like today the u.s government would be shown in a much more negative light hey you've got this thing we want we're gonna take it you know we're gonna make it property of the u.s government but here they're very polite about it they really like they're like hey can we have your permission to have this thing i think we could use it in the war effort (laughs) (laughs) it's it's more of the propaganda i know i know it's like look like yeah we might be like developing the a-bomb whatever but like we could sure use this too like anything we could get our hands on any kind of tech any kind of science yeah this movie also reminded me like i mentioned steve rogers but it has like that kind of sort of hydra vibe to it you know where that is all about how like hitler was into the end and raiders how they're looking for all these occult items to sort of try to help them rule the world and like the hollow earth and all this kind of crap and stuff so like this invisibility formula like fits right in there for me with like werewolf women of the ss you know like the same kind of mentality yeah absolutely it makes perfect sense as to why the nazis would want it what's strange to me though is that like if jack griffin the invisible man is like 
like internationally famous why the u.s government is like just now interested it seems like they did some digging it wasn't entirely buried but it wasn't like easy to figure it out right and they do have the resources now so they've probably discovered more information and come across like his old records or something sure but uh frank is is not to be swayed he says there's literally nothing that could happen that would make him reconsider his decision to keep the formula to himself and then we get this like 10 second quick almost a newsreel where the japanese attack pearl harbor we've got like 15 headlines in the span of about 10 seconds and suddenly frank frank has changed his tune it looked like the um the newsreel that they would run before the movie like it, it looked like it was the real stuff that's why I was like kind of surprised that they would go that full hard propaganda stuff because you see like you know like X-Men for instance like oh, has a lot to do like you see Magneto and Auschwitz and stuff right and so right, like, right. it's always sort of such a fine line of like is it tasteful is it like how much do you want to sort of meddle in world events you know and keep it sort of clean yeah. And, you know, they're not changing anything like Pearl Harbor happened a different day or anything, but I was still surprised that they would use like newsreel footage instead of just a spinning newspaper or something. Yeah, it does feel a little exploitative to that degree. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Exploitative, maybe this movie in general never really feels disrespectful to the victims, you know, the casualties that we sustained at true, Pearl Harbor. True. They're definitely leveraging uh, a pretty horrific event to launch a movie off of. Yeah, but you did hit on something like it it'll never cross my mind for the rest of the film. Like they manage once we get there, once we're in Berlin, like that's the end of it. Like they just sort of need to like do this one hit up top and then get it over with is sort of how it feels. Right. Yeah, they really don't hit hit you over the head with it, right? It is just that quick 10 seconds or or however long it is. Again, it's it's exploitative, but they don't linger on it, so it doesn't really it doesn't really bother me too much. And so Frank is now in this room. I don't even know who these guys are. Presumably, they're like the the, the joint <laughs> it's like the chiefs. war room. <laughs> yeah. And Frank's condition for surrendering the invisibility serum is that only he can use it. And so these government officials, like their plan is to send a guy into Germany, make him invisible and retrieve this collection of names of German and Japanese spies who are currently hiding in the United States. They know that they exist. They don't know who they are. They also suspect uh, another attack. And so... They want to take this serum and give it to like a trained spy or trained soldier to do the job, except, you know, Frank refuses to let anybody else use it. So in what requires the most uh, mental gymnastics here is that this entire group of people agree to let this (laughs) civilian man do the job. Which is like, to say it's a matter of national security is to put it mildly, right? Like if he fails, then some some real shit is going to come down. Yeah, even Captain America went through basic training. Like they do nothing. There's no montage of like a week of him, you know, learning how to shoot straight or anything. No, this this would take months. This would take months to learn. We got the one scene earlier, like the one we we got the one scene so far where he does kick a lot of ass, but like not enough ass to sort of justify being the candidate for this. Now, if he had said something along the lines of only my DNA, only the blood of like my family can sort of withstand the tolerance of this formula, then maybe I'd buy it. Yeah. But like, let him pick the guy. Like, that's (laughs) what you do, right? Like, let him pick the man like you don't just pick anyone otherwise yeah they just throw him in a cell and they take the formula 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what I think is interesting is that in this scene, he does make mention of the dangers of the drug. Right. He doesn't explicitly come out and say it, but he references the fact that this drug is dangerous. We know that it has a history of driving its user mad over uh, extended periods of time. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much irreversible. It's like a one-way trip for the most part. Right. I think all he says is that it may kill the man who uses it. Which is what they're trained for, dude. <laughs> Exactly right. Like a thousand people would line up and at this time of war to be like, yeah, shoot me up with anything. Send me out there. Yeah, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but they uh, all agree to send Frank overseas to retrieve this top secret information, which is held at the highest ranks among the Gestapo. Yeah, really. It's in like fortified facilities where all the important decisions are made. It's like maybe there is something about sending some guy with no training in because they're not expecting that. And so he's not going to really act so much like a spy or a soldier. He's kind of just going to like waltz around like a like a tourist for the most oh, part <laughs> and that is almost exactly what he does <laughs> <laughs> he sways the room they all agree and uh they send him to england where he will hop a plane into germany and i i like the miniatures here now we get a, a taste yeah. of some of the miniature work that we're going to get uh we get some more impressive stuff later on towards the end but i love this miniature of the uh, of the british plane that's flying him over nazi germany he injects himself with the invisibility serum he's told about the coffin maker Arnold Schmidt that's his contact and that he's told to locate him and ask for a coffin empire style and that's like the code to let him know that he's he's uh, one of them and so he jumps out of the plane into heavy anti-aircraft fire <laughs> <laughs> I think this sequence, like, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it is executed in a pretty impressive way. I Like I said, I like the miniatures. I love the effects work here. John Fulton does a great job um, with the explosions and making it all seem very real and, and terrifying. Yeah, I do really like the miniature work in this movie all around. Even later, like, we're going to get more plain stuff going on. It's very convincing. But this sequence just seems to be designed for maybe one or two. Like, one, it's very comical. It's, yes. it's comical, you know? And, like, we need some of that in here, obviously. And, like, some of it has to be jokes. It can't all just be making fun of the Nazis as much as we'd like it to be. Like, it has you have to do some sight humor and gags with the Invisible Man and stuff. Right. Because it would be way more logical for him to just sneak across enemy lines on the ground. Right. He's invisible. Right. Like, you just kind of waltz through. It's like, give him a map. Tell him to walk this path to Berlin. There'll be a motorcycle in the woods and tell, you know, whatever. So it just seems to be, we want to see an invisible parachuter. <laughs> right. We just want to see that parachute flying on its own. And I'll admit, it's a great, it's a great gag. So yeah. great that they, you know, did it in Deadpool 2. <laughs> right. It's funny. I don't know how intentionally funny they want it to be but like i feel like it plays really well especially after accepting the last sequence where they're sending this guy in the first place like they're not thinking straight to begin with so they're just no. like hey just shove him out of a plane or something <laughs> yeah i mean this is this is another example of the filmmakers doing away with logic in order to tell a more compact story you know they're, they're just trying to keep it moving and to, at the expense of what would seem to us to be like just logical choices 
But yeah, you're right. The invisible man in the parachute is a great sight gag. I don't know that it's meant to be laugh out loud funny, but it is mildly humorous. Uh, He definitely makes a joke out of the Nazis in the barn with the hay. And then later when he steals the Jeep, he's riding in the passenger seat and like punches that guy out and throws him off the Jeep. Clearly, these are not the most astute Nazi soldiers. So like right off the bat, we're, we're kind of getting a taste of what we're dealing with here in terms of this film's depiction of the enemy. Oh yeah, they're, they're not even stormtroopers, they're battle droids. Right, like, right. He's just going to cut through them like butter. Oh, for sure. Before too long, he does make it to the coffin shop and introduces himself to Arnold Schmidt with his coffin empire style code line. And then I think I mentioned this earlier. I love this effect here where, I mean, he's straight up naked and he's drinking a hot cup of coffee. I think that this is one of the more seamless effects involving John Hall. I can't really see him in the shot. So I I, I love this. From this scene, he is told about the other person who's undercover, right? That's Maria. Yeah, his contact. Yeah, he gets the address, and across the street, there is what appears to be a cafe of some kind. And I guess at this time, or or maybe it wasn't uncommon, like for taxi drivers to kill time in a cafe, and like they would get phone calls there to go pick somebody up. Yeah, I thought that was just, that was the actual like cab station. There's like a couple guys in there. One of them who had an eye patch, or like you get the one eyed cab driver and Berlin, good luck. Uh, <laughs> right. But like, I thought I saw a sign out front that it was sort of like the cabbie station. But maybe it's maybe it's not. Maybe it's a combination of things. I thought it was cool, nevertheless. And this is such a smart move. Like, I, I want to. I wish I could try this out. I wish I had the nerve to do this one day. But he's gonna like call for a cab, and he's like, "Can you pick me up at this address?" And he's gonna invisibly sneak into the back seat and get a free ride to the place. That was so smart. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't I don't know that we could accomplish that with an Uber these days. It is a great plan and it does work out for him. Or I'm looking at the scene and it looks like this is like an inn of some kind. There's a bar I mean, they're playing cards at a table. This this is foreign to me, but it, it seems to me that at this time, cabbies, instead of having like a, a home office with a dispatcher, would sort of set up shop at like a cafe like this and then, you know, wait for phone calls and, and go take their jobs, you know, wherever they were called to. Yeah, I also like how Schmidt is like completely tripping about the invisible man. Like he, oh, I yeah. don't feel like he ever gets his bearings in this sequence where he's just like, I just can't, I just can't believe this. It's like, I can't believe my eyes because they don't see anything. Yeah, he's he's uh, like one of us. He's seeing an invisible man for the first time and, you know, he gets to have that fun reaction. But I mean, he doesn't take it too long to just be like, to just accept that there's an invisible man. He's like, okay, well, all right, well, uh, sure. Here's, here's what we do next. And so he calls and has a cab delivered to the address where Maria is staying. And as you mentioned, he secretly climbs into the back of the cab, which takes him all the way there. Genius plan. Yeah, maybe they weren't so dumb sending this guy after. (laughs) I mean, he does have moments of brilliance. But like over the next maybe 10, 15 minutes in these scenes with Maria, he definitely seems more interested in getting to know her and having fun as an invisible man than he does in uh, being a spy. So we finally meet. Maria, she's wearing a beautiful Vera West dress, the, the first of a couple she will wear in this film. Of course, they have the, the miscommunication, like, there's a cab for you, I didn't order a cab, blah, blah, blah. Frank makes his way into the house, 
And this is when he starts to have some fun. You know, he does his wolf whistle at Maria, shuts the lights off, does the old, the old, let me uh, sort of level the playing field a bit. You can't see me, so I won't see you. And then eventually, like, reveals himself as the American agent who's been sent in to capture this information. Yeah, they have a very strange, sort of strained relationship right from the beginning. Unfortunately, this isn't going to be the only time, like, people barge into her bedroom without asking, you know, like. I kind of like how she's like, you're kind this is cool and all, but you're kind of a nuisance. Like, can you please, there are things going on, like you need to relax. But he's also, I feel like he's juiced up a little on invisible serum and like he can't help himself. Oh, for sure. That's how the excessive drinking is going to come out. The kind of the pranking. She adjusts pretty quickly. I think as soon as she hears him use the Empire style line, suddenly she's okay. Well, this isn't an enemy. This is a friend of some kind. But yeah, like he's not shown up at the greatest time. She's planning to have company. We know that her visitor will be Heiser and they're going to have dinner. It seems like up until the end, he's never really going to fully trust her. So I feel like that's why he's sort of acting a little less respectful, maybe, than you would. Possibly. Yeah, but like as we said, in this whole sequence, from here until the end of the dinner sequence, he's more interested in being invisible. I think like you hit it the nail on the head. Like he's kind of high on this idea of being invisible. So he's like smoking cigarettes, he takes a bath, which actually not a terrible effects shot where he's like soaping up his hands and his leg. The seams are there a little bit because I think his his like his outside arm crosses behind his leg, so kind of like doesn't fully sell the effect, but for the most part i buy it and then when heiser shows up you know he's he's brought all sorts of fancy food there's a great line where he, he he's like pulling out all these different things like i think salmon from norway and uh caviar from russia and, and so on and so forth and he says every country we conquer feeds us oh man just so cruel i mean he knows it yes like he loves being a nazi <laughs> yes like, there's nothing worse than that right and like he revels in it in his position and like there's so much backstabbing between the nazis in this movie it's terrific to see that kind of stuff too going on but yep. right the way that he is exploiting the places they've conquered and stuff is like yeah these are all the places that we are now in so evil <laughs> But he has one thing on his mind at this dinner, and that is really to get into the pants of Maria Sorensen, right? Like, he is head over heels in love with her. Who belongs to Stauffer? Yes. I was going to say, we we established the Stauffer connection. Before they sit down to eat, Heiser notices the portrait of Stauffer over over the fireplace, and he goes to flip it around. And she flips it back around, saying she likes it when he's he's like their chaperone. So yeah, that it sort of establishes just with an eight by ten photo that Stauffer is involved in this like love triangle in some way. I mean, again, I'm getting like Inglorious Bastards vibes. Oh yeah, on, between like Shoshana and uh, and Frederick and stuff yes. like that, and then even to have like you know Hans looming over them and all that kind of stuff, like yeah. very very fun dynamic. Absolutely. And so now for the next few minutes, we get a series of, you know, invisibility effects. Screwball comedy. It's like they really get it out of their system in this sequence, you know? They, they really do. From the lighter, he lights the light. It looks like it lights itself. To when they sit down to eat, he's stealing food off of um, Heiser's plate and eating it. He's drinking the champagne. And, and by the end of the sequence, Heiser has like food on his face. Frank has like tilted the table to spill like the entire contents of that table all over his uniform. 
chloroform. At which point he he leaves in a huff. Yeah, well, Maria is like uncontrollably laughing at him. And yes. he cannot be laughed at. And like that's no. the that is like the scariest part of the scene is his breaking point where he's like, I've killed people for less than laughing at me. And he's yes. like, I will not be humiliated. And he's like, You're under house arrest. And she's like, Oh, come on, come on. And it's like, <laughs> oh, she's under house arrest. And it's like shit just got real, real fast. <laughs> Fun's over. But the one important thing about this scene, like amongst all of the the silliness, the scene establishes that Heiser is privy to the information that Frank is after. He mentions the uh, foreign agents that are in the United States and there's going to be an attack on New York. And as Maria is trying to get the specifics out of him, he switches the subject. So for all of the silliness that's going on in this sequence, that is the big takeaway for Frank. He knows that Heiser is his key to getting the information he's after. And it's nice how clearly that's all exposed like the exposition of all that is nice where she's like oh i don't want to talk about politics to get him to talk right. about like the plan and then he starts like spilling the beans and she's like oh tell me more and he's like no 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 i don't feel like talking politics and i was like "Ooh, you know everyone's sort of playing their own game in this movie which yes. is really cool it's like a true spy movie like there are no sides like in my mind that just like i'm right. not sure what maria is going to do if she does get the formula first you know i don't know yeah. So Heiser like immediately makes his way back to what appears to be like Hitler's office. I mean, he mentions at one point during dinner that like he's met Hitler. He is like totally in his good graces. And if you were to believe everything he says, like he and Hitler are like best friends. They're bros. Yeah, <laughs> they are. And, like I've been in a room with just him and he's confided in me with stuff. And it, and they may as well have sort of like um, like a text card come up and be like Hitler's house. Like, <laughs> Before we get into that, Maria and Frank get to actually chit chat and she's kind of pissed. She spent a lot of that scene trying to clean up Frank's messes, uh, figuratively speaking. And he apparently like ruined years worth of her work. And he's just like, ah, it'll be it'll be OK. Yeah. Like he is just not really cut out to be a spy. No. No, that's become evident. And, and I like how she kind of reprimands him, you know, and is like, come on, like, what are you doing? Like, get your head in the game. And he does apologize. Yeah, he's like the most cocksure hero we've had to date. I think like he's just not concerned. I think he's, he's so confident as an invisible spy that, like, whatever she thinks he may have screwed up is going to be totally fine. So... As they're having that conversation, a bunch of SS stations to keep her in the home hear that conversation. And as they barge in to, to question her about it, he sneaks out the door to follow Heiser. Oh, but not before maybe one of the better effect shots in the movie where he gives Maria a kiss on his way out. I thought this was a tricky shot, but I think it's accomplished as well as they, they probably could have. So as, as they're having that conversation, a bunch of the SS officers come in. They overhear the conversation. They come in to find out what's going on. And Frank just sort of hides in that moment, right? And Maria has to sort of explain it away. So when once the SS officers are back outside, we get a really great effect shot of Frank giving her a kiss as she lays down on the bed. I thought of the effect shots that that was one of the better ones in this film. It's kind of an ambitious shot, I think, having an invisible man kiss someone who is visible. But yeah, I think they pull it off pretty well here. And now with the SS officers back outside, Frank is getting comfortable in this house, right? And so he finally allows himself to be visible for her comfort, right? So she can... She can see where he is. And so we get what is kind of like maybe the worst <laughs> looking invisible, uh, visible invisible man 
you know, the other looks have been pretty cool. Claude Rains looked great in the trench coat and the hat and or the, the robe, you know, and then we get Vincent Price, who looks great with the, the wrappings and the, and the goggles. But here we've got a man in a robe and some cold cream with his head wrapped in a scarf, looking very silly. I didn't think it was that bad because I was thinking Memoirs of an Invisible Man, like this sure. is the same gag. But then I was also thinking like they kind of do something close to this in Hollow Man where they make him a mask. Right. right. They do like a face impression or something like that. And they make him a Kevin Bacon face. So I don't know. Like, what can you really do? I think the idea here was to like, we need to kind of feature the actor a little bit more somehow. Like, is there and also perform an interesting invisibility trick? And I like the concept. I, would, I will give you the execution is not all there. They might have bitten off a little more that they can chew. And it does look kind of funny but i also kind of dig it and it's just this it's all just very disarming no matter what you know like yeah. it's just all hard to like keep straight it's like i could never look at him if he was in the room but i'd right. feel better knowing i could if i wanted to i could see his face and stuff yeah i mean it, it's it's practical within the context of the scene he didn't bring any clothes with him so he's just gonna have access to whatever's laying around her house which is gonna be a lot of women's clothes and and makeup and so on and so forth so like yes it does make sense but this is one of those moments where i wish style had trumped logic a little bit more because it just doesn't look cool considering how how much of a hero this man is like he's like the quintessential classic american hero of the 1940s the cold cream and the robe just he doesn't look cool yeah i hear you to me he kind of looks like a ghost like ghost man sure and also he looks kind of like a monster which is sort of <laughs> what I think I wanted, right? Like I want, sure. I kind of want him to be uglyish or not pleasing to, to view some of the time because we rarely do get to see the invisible man. And when, like you said, when he's wearing stuff, he's cool looking. Yeah. He's going to have one of the cooler looks later on. One that sort of harkened back to that really cool, almost Darth Vader-y looking costume that Vincent Price wore. So we do get something that is really cool later. It's just this one is a little too silly for me, even though it is incredibly practical in context. You know, like I can't imagine realistically what else he'd be putting on. Yeah, they must not have either. Because when they do get these ideas of style over content or whatever you want to say, like they, they do that. So... My only yeah. thinking is like, this is all, this is, they could only come up with like, what would be the most practical thing as opposed to what is the most aesthetically pleasing? Yeah. We get like a new side effect of the drug, I believe in this scene, where the invisibility serum makes him suddenly tired for no reason whatsoever. Yeah, narcoleptic. Yeah. And so he lays down for a few minutes to rest his eyes and later will find that he is like impossible to wake up. That too. is so scary. You could right? be in the middle of anything. Right. And like driving a car or operating a plane. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, this is new. We don't really get any of the crazy side effects that we're used to, which is strange. But we do get this new one, which is like, yeah, like you said, sort of a narcolepsy. So he, he decides he's going to rest his eyes for a bit. And we cut back to Heiser, who is like going straight into Hitler's office. Instead of finding his good pal Adolf Hitler, he sees Stouffer sitting behind the desk, cigarette in hand. And he has to sort of explain what he's been up to. 
we get Peter Laurie in this scene, which is a little bit superfluous. And I think they even realize it's because he sees himself out. He's basically saying, like, I know you've seen a lot of me. I'm just going to go, you know, do something else. But what we establish in this scene is that Heiser explains his story of the evening, why his his uniform is all messy. And as Stouffer hears the story, he realizes that there is an invisible spy among them. There's no doubt in his mind that it's Frank Griffin, the man that he was trying to get this serum from at the beginning of the movie. He's being used by the American government. I love that it's not the biggest leap, but it is him using his German logic, his superior German logic, which is really cool. Yeah, and I like the reintroduction of Cedric Hardwick. Almost spins around in the chair kind of reveal of himself. Yes. It's enough stuff has kind of happened and we've been introduced to a bunch of new characters so that when he reappears... I was like, oh, shit, he's back, you know, and like he's back from that mission and he failed. But like now with all the stuff that Heiser's telling him about why he's like dirty and the food and and the strange crap that's going on over at Maria's house, the gears are turning and he's like, oh, right, putting two and two together. He's here. The Invisible Man's at the house. Like he's going to start to formulate a plan out of all this kind of stuff. But he's also and we'll get there soon. But like he's also like pretty upset that Heiser has tried to go behind his back and talk to Hitler without him and like put moves on his woman and is like all the, you know, like he's not happy and Heiser's been caught and it's uh, he's kind of like pulling at his necktie, like trying to get some extra air in this scene. <laughs> yeah, I, I love the way that this particular scene sort of kickstarts the action proper. In this scene, Stouffer's plan is sort of twofold, right? He is going to humiliate Heiser in front of Maria to sort of intimidate her by her seeing a, quote, friend arrested should keep her scared and uh, and obedient. Yeah, right? he straight up reprimands him, strips him down, calls him like a traitor. You're sentenced to prison and eventually death. Like, oh my God, like what a day for this guy. Just, just like an hour ago, he thought he was having like the most wonderful dinner and now he's in prison. And I'm not saying I feel sorry for him, but like it's such a great kind of fall for him. Like it's like you want to see that happened to a bad guy you know oh absolutely and like he's the one for that to happen to because he is not nearly as smart as he thinks he is right it's clear from like the moment we meet him that he has these high ambitions but he's not smart enough you know like he's he's never gonna be hitler's right hand guy you know it's never gonna happen he's too much of an idiot i feel like we've seen that before in lots of places right where there's a guy who has the idea but he doesn't have the means or anything or like he's not clever enough to pull it off so like it never comes to fruition or whatever he never gets what he wants or something but like right. such a great version of that character playing out. Yes. And the second piece of this plan is that Stouffer wants to reveal the location of like the notebook, right? With with all of the foreign agents that are that are in the United States. He wants Frank to know where it is uh, because he's setting a trap, right? And I love this moment where he's like walking around the bedroom and we know Frank is invisible on that sort of chaise lounge because Maria has, has like wiped the makeup off of him in a hurry, has taken the robe off, his sunglasses and everything. And so we, the audience, assume that he is still laying there asleep but then Stouffer goes to sit down on it and Frank is gone so I love that little bit of suspense that's there. the moment where he's like oh you look like you could use a doctor right now you've right as a ghost and he's talking about you know maybe 
dude, this is this is dark. Where he's like, maybe Heiser will like develop appendicitis, and during his surgery, he won't make it for some reason. Like he'll die. Oh yeah. And 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 she's like, you can't just kill all your enemies in surgery, you know? And he's like, well, you don't know how sick my patients are for real. That's like, <laughs> like, oh my gosh, there's some like bad stuff going on in his wherever his dungeon is. Oh, definitely. So on his way out, Maria tries to locate Frank, but Frank is gone. He has taken the bait. So Maria, with nothing else to do, uh, decides to unwind for the night and I guess hope for the best. I love how how simple the next sequence is, right? Because it cuts right back to Stouffer's office. And all we see is like a group of German officers standing outside of what appears to be an office, right? The door opens by itself and closes. And then they all look at each other and kind of smile. And then they lock the door. So Frank is now in the office, rifling through the desk. He's rifling through like files, trying to find this information, right? And then, of course, Stouffer enters knowing that he's in there. I love this sequence. I think it's really clever the way that they block the scene, right? Because you got a visible man having a conversation with an invisible man, and he has Frank sit in that office chair, right? And just sort of rock back and forth. So we have something visual to look at to represent Frank. I also really love this scene because they're re-meeting from the first scene, and now Frank's invisible. And it right. <laughs> and Stouffer's like, you used it you jerk like what are you doing like that's what i wanted to do like i wanted that i feel like he gives him a certain amount of like not respect but it's like you've got some balls to be doing this yourself after even like lying about having it and now you're here in my office but this is definitely like like the batman interrogation scene reversed or something or you know when the green goblin has spider-man tied up on the roof and and he's like talking to him about their plans and stuff like it's so great like it plays so well and i really get like this rivalry going on between these two characters and it's starting to feel like very comic book to me where like the invisible man has like all these adventures in nazi germany and all the while he's also trying to stay a step ahead looking for exits trying to find ways out and things like that to no avail yet but very cool scene yeah, I mean, Stouffer is, is trying to do whatever he can to, not to bargain, but to get that formula from him and, and in exchange for letting him live, right? right. But Frank is not going to take it. I love that he turns on that little, like, space heater, dumps it into the waste bin, and then, like, just starts a, a, an epic fire in this uh, Nazi office. Now, we know that the office is, like, four stories above street level, so he can't just jump out the window. But I love the way it works out because he started the fire. The firemen show up and he's able to take the notebook and escape down the fire ladder. But not before like some more fun and games with these Nazis that barge in. Like he he punches a couple in the face. He throws the inkwell into the one guy's face. So still having some fun at Nazi yeah, expense. Yeah, this almost felt like an Indiana Jones sequence. <laughs> he's a, he's caught in the Nazi castle and now he has to like escape. Clever. And there's even a fire in that. But using the firemen, like when the brigade shows up and he goes down the ladder, I was like, yep. maybe I'm like starting to come around to Frank. Like maybe, don't get me wrong, he still needs to learn how to like shoot straight or whatever. Like <laughs> right. I haven't seen him use a gun or not, but like some training, he really might be something. Employ him after or like, you know, send him on more missions. 
he's not terribly smart, but he is a great blunt instrument, right? Like if you throw him into a room, like he can kick some ass and find a clever way out, you know, like I think that's, that's his strong. Well, that's the thing. That's what I mean is like, he's an escape artist. (laughs) Right. Well, I guess you need to be, to be the invisible man, but that seems to be his like special power to a degree where it's like, no matter what room he's in, like he'll find a way out. (laughs) So, right. So he does successfully make off with the undercover agent information and gives it to Arnold Schmidt. And has a, there's a really great moment where he's just like looking around the coffin shop. He opens up the one. He goes, ooh, spooky. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that strikes me as funny, but it does. It's like the one like reference to anything spooky in a universal monster movie you know like this is the one we get in this movie okay so then uh, his next move is to call maria and of course he knows the line is tapped so he poses as a man selling cold cream and in his own secret way figures out if she's like still with him right and of course that, that'll come into play later back at stouffer's office he and his men are sort of searching through the damage in the office which is not as bad as it could be it seems like only one small part of the office was destroyed but it was enough for uh for frank to escape baron akito shows up and this is maybe my favorite interaction between baron akito and stouffer in that akito sort of threatens stouffer like their alliance is is shaky at best which is reminiscent of the actual german japanese relations at the time you know they they didn't have the, the easiest alliance and so Baron Akito is also in danger if that list gets out into the open, right? And so he he makes that clear and that in his country, there are consequences for failure. It's his list. That's yes. his ledger. That's He's right. like, you said you would take care of this, man. You said it was in the vault. Like it would be safe with you over everyone else. And you screwed me, pal. And now I'm going to have to cut off a finger or something. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> not happy at all about it. Yeah, but I, I love I love Laurie sort of um, calmly threatening Stouffer in this scene. This is cool, too, because you're right. It is a very uneasy alliance, and it's not one of those situations where it's like the enemy of the enemy is my friend. It's like, no, like these guys are enemies that are being forced to cooperate like under this circumstance. And not only that, like I'm sure whoever would get the formula in America, it would be like only one of them would have gotten back, you know, like someone sure. was going to die between the two of them. Like they are they don't owe each other anything. So right. to find out that Aikido has like a higher up, obviously Stouffer has a higher up. It's just cool how it adds a level of complexity to all the dynamics like mm-hmm. this deep into the movie. Yeah. And we're foreshadowing like the finale, like failure is not an option. And so with that, we move to the prison where Heiser is being held and he is, man, he, he has fallen so far. <laughs> I love the guards here. Funny note, I love that accents are not consistent in this movie. And like, I swear to God, one of these German prison guards is speaking with like a Brooklyn Yes, accent. I caught something like that too. There's no way we'd ever get a them speaking German, which would, would have been incredible, right. obviously. But like, you know, come on. The guy like practically said baseball hot dog. Yeah, when they, they offer him that sort of like pig slop and he's like, I'm not hungry. And the guy's like, why? Because it's not lobster, you know, just <laughs> you don't watch a chowder. With this scene, Frank manages to get inside of Heiser's prison cell. And this monologuing that he does is is kind of what I interpreted as Kurt Siodmak sort of inserting himself a little bit into this screenplay. It's sort of an unnecessary monologue, but it's really just Frank 
kind of saying like you guys are never going to win this war and here's why and he lists off all the, the like the, the flaws of the nazi thinking and it goes on for a little bit a little it's the whole scene <laughs> it's the whole scene yeah but i agree there's a lot of it right but these guys had a lot on their mind and a lot to say and it was sort of the one time where i was like noticing that i was like wow we're really starting to wave a flag with a big message on it right now and not that that's a bad thing it was just weird because the rest of the movie kind of wasn't doing that so much you know it was playing around a lot of that stuff and alluding to it of course you know like with the arresting her friend in front of her like that's dark stuff and everything but this yeah. this was a little more on the nose like he was reading a speech that he had prepared or, or something like that and again i'm not against it or anything i just wish it was a little more well integrated maybe even piece by piece throughout the movie like frank was saying this stuff to the nazis from time to time right because i don't remember him boasting like this when he was having his meeting with Stouffer or anything like that, really, like this stuff didn't come up and you would feel like some of it might have come out then to, to sort of fuel this the rest of this fire. Yeah, he's not like hardcore anti-Nazi from the beginning. You know, like this is a strange little soapbox moment. Maybe would have been a little bit better if he had expressed some anti-Nazi sentiment in front of like the Joint Chiefs in the war room. Mm -hmm. Well, it would have been incredible if they could have come out and said that he was maybe Jewish or something. Or, or something like that. But yeah, like, like I could see him pounding on his fist on the desk talking about how he wanted to like eliminate these Nazis. And, and like that would be his, his prime motivation. Instead, his only motivation is just that I can't let anybody else use this serum. It has to be me. So yeah, maybe would have done a little better if he had been clearly anti-Nazi from the beginning. Yeah, because otherwise he waits until this one moment to have a big speech about why the Nazis are going to lose and you know, why they're all going to die. And... I still can't believe he snuck all the way into that prison. <laughs> yeah, right? Again, I think it's Kurt Siodmak getting on his soapbox a little bit. For better or worse, I, I do think it's a good speech. I just wish there was some more of that earlier in the movie. I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, you might have got some applause in the audience after that. You know, it's just like that's what it's there for is of to course. rile you up. Yeah. Yes. Before the guards come to take Heiser away, presumably for his execution, Frank leverages aid in exchange for the information that he's looking at, he's looking for, right? He wants to know what surprise attack is going down and when it's going to happen. And we learn that the agents in the country are going to like dismantle utilities and the infrastructure, the infrastructure of the United States, right? At the same time that a bunch of bombers are going to come and attack New York City. Did he say we have sleeper cells and a, and a suicide squad? Yes. I was like, what are y'all, some kind of suicide squad? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Yeah, so the plan was to send like a hundred bombers into New York and just decimate it. And, and again, the, have the Nazi, Nazi and Japanese spies destroy the American infrastructure as well. But before he wants to give up, you know, the date and time, he wants assurance that he will be rescued, right? And so with the clock ticking, I mean, he's got seconds. Frank manages to get the information from him. At the last second, the plan is for things to happen that evening, right? In a few hours, those bombers are going to launch their attack. And so Frank has a very short period of time in which to relay that information back to um, the American government. And so as these Nazi officers are coming in to take Heiser away, Frank intervenes, knocks them both out. And this is where they both dress up in these like SS uniforms, which like I love I love Frank as this like invisible Nazi officer with the big. I love that too. I mean, anytime it happens, 
most notably probably like Star Wars comes to mind. But anytime you knock out the guards and put on their shit and like yeah. waltz through the place like you own it, right. like love that done really well here, even better because Frank is invisible and he's got yep. like the collar up and everything. But I got to tell you, Dan, the one thing I appreciated more than anything is the ticking clock when he's like, the thing's going to happen tonight. I was right. like, oh, thank goodness. Yeah. Thank goodness, because the rest of this movie is going to be a race, you know? Yes. And, like, that's exactly what I wanted was, like, how are they going to propel us to the finale here? And it's just going to be, like, nonstop. Yeah, we've got 20 minutes left in this movie, and it's going to be the most exciting 20 minutes, I think, of the whole film. Because um, now we've got this incredible sense of urgency right we have no time to lose and so with heiser and frank in disguise well with frank in disguise they uh make their way out of the prison pretty effortlessly and heiser takes frank back to arnold schmidt's coffin shop coffin emporium yeah (laughs) but of course there's a car of nazis just waiting outside right kind of keeping an eye on the place this was such a cool like idea for a team up right he's like got a nazi in his pocket so the nazi's like look there's like did you catch those guys did he, like he's got he's like exposing all of their tricks for him it only works because it's heiser who is like he's an opportunist right he's kind of like the lowest of the low in terms of these nazis there's no honor whatsoever right he's just gonna stick with whoever can get him out of trouble you know and into the best possible situations so while they're teaming up we have this great interrogation scene with uh, cedric hardwick and albert basserman right they were able to trace a call from his shop and they don't know who spoke to whom but they know that or they suspect that he is in league with Frank and are trying to to get a confession out of him, but he refuses to give it up. Right? He he just insists that there's lots of people who live in that building. He's a carpenter. He knows nothing about radios. And I love the moment. Now these cut back and forth, so we can just stick with with the interrogation. I love that moment where Stauffer tries to get him to sign something that says he was treated fairly and not hurt, and he's unable to do it because they broke all of his fingers. That was crazy. Right? That was so nuts. That like legitified this movie for me into maybe into the horror genre. <laughs> Yeah. The reality of the situation is that they would have just shot him. Like, he, he would not have lived through that interrogation. Well, they're gonna. They're gonna drag him off to to shoot him. Like, yeah, they may as well, though, just have the noise off screen as soon as he was hauled away. The whole pretense of, like, having him sign something that says he was treated fairly seems unnecessary, you know, in, in terms of, like, the real-world scenario, right? Like, there's this is purely for the movie. Well, it's Nazi bureaucracy, too. It's like you got to keep account and records yeah. of every fucking thing, even, like, how you killed somebody or lied about it or whatever. Like, there's just a record of everything. Right. But, yeah, that's it's an amazing moment when... Because these two great actors across uh-huh. from each other, right? And, like, the one guy's like, you know, sign the paper. And he's like, I can't. And he's like... Why not? And at first you think it's because, like, he doesn't believe it, right? He's like, I won't sign what I don't believe. But he lifts up his hands. He's like, you broke my hands. I can't sign anything. (laughs) I was like, no way, movie. Heavy stuff. Yeah, very much so. That might be the heaviest this movie gets, right? I think that's the the closest it gets to uh, some some real life horror. Yeah, yeah. Well, even I would say like across this whole series we've been doing, they've tried not to make it quite this realistic, you know? Like for the most part, like this is real life horror stuff, undiluted 
through any kind of makeup or fantasy. Right. Like this is a reality actually happening. I mean, worse than this. Like, you, like we mentioned, you know, he's gonna probably in real life he'd get just shot. Um, so it digs a little deeper. And as much as this like last third of the movie is a race to the finish, I do enjoy that the, it slows down just for this sequence. This is maybe some of the best stuff in the whole movie in terms of it being just like a World War II era thriller, right? Like this is where it really starts to hit yes. home considering um, all of the fun we've had up to this point. Like we kind of need that reminder that there's some really horrifying stuff happening. So. Yeah, because they're taking it mostly straight for the mm -hmm. most, like obviously it's, it's not entirely, but it would be like, well, what if an invisible man just suddenly dropped into the middle of Berlin during World War II? like it there would be surreal effects and it would be it would there would be surreal like confrontations it would be confounding there'd be all this like mystery and nonsense as well so it's kind of neat to see like oh this would have been a normal spy movie if not for this guy to be invisible yeah 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 meanwhile while that's all happening we've got frank headed back to the the coffin shot or the carpenter shop maria is hiding out there waiting for him and this is where his his trust in her really takes a nosedive right he he immediately suspects that she sold out arnold schmidt and it was it's setting him up for a trap she insists that she did no such thing she came there to warn him but he is so convinced that she is not to be trusted that he doesn't realize that he's walk he is walking into a trap. Baron Ikido has has laid a trap for him. Maybe the the most unusual trap I've ever seen. One of the most unusual. They literally catch him with a big net that falls from the ceiling, and the net has like a bunch of these comically large fish hooks in it. Yeah, and the hooks like dig into him the more he tries to move. Right. I feel like might have seen this somewhere else in a in a way where it's like this: you're in a net, and the more you move, the tighter it gets, or something. And maybe that's like the effect they're going for. But it is kind of a bizarre thing. And yeah. suddenly we're back in the science fiction realm and my mind like couldn't quite adjust fast enough. I was like, it could have just been a net or like an electric net would have been cool. Again, like it's such like a torturous kind of idea. You know, there's something so, so sinister and about it. It's like, it's not just a net, but it's got these hooks too. And the more you move, the deeper they dig. So you'd better lay still. And it's like, you're really screwed now, buddy. Like you better not move. I was a little conflicted about it. Like, I think it's a little silly. I don't know if there's any truth to it. Like if there's any legitimacy to it in, in, in history, but it does seem like something that could be plausible, you know? So it's just unlike anything. It's like any other trap or torture device I've seen in a movie before. I'd be honest, like it would be something maybe I have seen in like a Shaw Brothers film or something. I mean, I know these characters are Japanese, but like I'm just saying like in those movies, they have so many creative weapons and uses for mm -hmm, things mm -hmm. that like maybe it came from the uh, history of that or something now that he's been captured by baron akito he is only like his his belief that maria had set him up is only reinforced and so akito and his men leave the carpenter shop through the front door they bring a car around and leave with two coffins and of course heiser sees the whole thing go down but he doesn't quite put two and two together and he heads into the carpenter shop to make contact with frank because frank at this point is his only way out of germany safely meanwhile the germans that have been keeping an eye on the shop to begin with they decide they're going to investigate you know whatever it is the japanese are up to i kind of like that little scene like like the first time I was watching it, I was like, this scene kind of seems like a bit of a waste. But the second time I watched it, I was like, no, he's so desperate. He like goes into the empty 
building and he's like anybody here there's something so like pathetic about it (laughs) that comes off like so well but it doesn't last long as soon as he realizes he can't count on frank he immediately switches gears and decides he's going to appeal to stouffer again try to get back into his good graces it's so funny could you imagine if he had just gone to try and save frank he would be in america at the end of the movie Right. But no, he's not wasting any time or at least, I mean, I mean, in his position, I could see him just assuming Frank is once a Nazi, always a Nazi. When he makes the call to Stouffer, he's like, you know, I want to tell you something, but I want your word as a Nazi that like I'll be reinstated into the party with full rank. You know, I want to be jacked back into the Matrix, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, like what I'm saying is I think that he has given up on Frank as a way out of the situation, right? Yeah, but he shouldn't have, is my point. Like, if he had truly right, right. turned, oh, absolutely. He, would, yep. he would have become heroic throughout the rest of the movie. That would have been something. Not that yes. I don't love his fate. Correct. So he knows where they're headed and uh, has Stouffer agree to meet him at this cross street. And what we realize in the very next shot is that cross street is where the Japanese embassy is. And that's where Frank is, and they're removing the hooks and the and the net from him. And presumably, he's going to be tortured for information. I thought they were just going to do a vivisection, like, to get the secrets of the formula, you know? Because he's like, how is it that one turns colorless? And the scientist is like, we'll know soon enough. And I was like, ooh, they're going to they're gonna just chop him up. Yeah, so, like, they've presumably drawn some blood from him, right? I would just, I mean, that's, that's what I gathered from it. Mm-hmm. And that they are currently as they speak, working on figuring out what it is that makes him invisible. But in the meantime, Frank is still invisible. He's under a blanket on this chaise lounge. Why he is not bound in any way is completely beyond me. I have no idea why they wouldn't, like, treat him like a prisoner. It's a little silly, I guess. I mean, maybe the arrogance of, like, where are you going to go? Like, there's nowhere to hide and run kind of thing. Little do they know that he has Hulk strength that he can summon, you know, whenever he's backed into a corner. But Akito is still kind of in deal-making mode. Stouffer tried to appeal to him to get this formula. Akito is now trying to figure out a way to get this information. But before anything can really come of it, everyone descends upon this embassy. A lot of people descend upon this embassy. It's bedlam. It's awesome. It's like, I was not expecting, again, like, this movie just keeps surprising me the, the further it gets, you know? I mean, I would even admit, like, the back half is, like, twice as good as the first half yeah like i sort of said before like all the exciting stuff is happening in this last like 20 minutes of the movie so we get multiple cars of nazi officers these aren't even really like your regular soldiers right these all appear like they're in the black uniform so i think they're all like ss and so they come barging in in the chaos frank manages to like punch a few guys out he picks maria up and like runs out the door with her and while all the nazis pile in there's fighting on both sides the japanese are fighting the germans and so so again, in in the midst of all that, Frank picks up Maria and runs out the door. Now that feels a little bit silly. Maybe it's just the effect makes it seem silly. Yeah, I think it's the effect. That's a thing where it's like, oh, conceptually, like that'll be hilarious, right? Like, uh, you know, they'll <laughs> throw her over the shoulder and they'll run out of the room. And it's like when Indiana Jones like throws Willie over his shoulder or whatever. But it's not as well executed. Yeah, it maybe undercuts some of the seriousness of what's actually happening. That as well. Because the stakes are still very high. If he doesn't succeed, New York's going to be blown up. Yeah, dude, this is literally the end of Captain America 
first Avenger, like where he right. has to stop the Red Skull's bombing of the East Coast. <laughs> so they make off, they, like, they pile into a truck and make their way to the airstrip where they're going to presumably uh, hop a plane and get back to England to warn of the impending danger. And, and then a bunch of the Nazis like chase after them. But Akito and Stouffer stay behind. I, actually, Akito keeps Stouffer yes. behind. And this is that moment he was alluding to earlier about how like failure would have consequences, right? Yeah, this is one of my favorite scenes again. Like, oh man, I can't believe it. Just keep coming. Akito says he will make an honorable man out of Stouffer, finally, right? And disembowels him before committing Harry Carey on himself. That was wild. Like, I did not think that they were going to go this this deep with it, right? Yeah. Like, that they were going to full-on culturally exploit, like, the heritage yeah, yeah. of Japanese people in this movie. But, like, yeah, he takes out the dagger and he stabs... Stouffer in the heart, like right through the Nazi logo. Um, and then next time we see him, he's in like a gi and he's right. changed clothes and stuff. And he's kneeling in front of like his shrine and he pulls out the knife and he does the Harry Carey. I was, I was again, I was stunned. The two main bad guys of the movie took each other out. Like yes. that is awesome. <laughs> I love that final visual. Like it's, it's all one shot, but it's where um, Peter Laurie, he's facing away from the camera. Uh, stabs himself and then like falls over and then the camera tilts down to Stouffer who is lying dead you know with his bloody Nazi armband uh, draped across his chest like that's such a powerful image of those two ultimate bad guys of this movie both and I think it might have been kind of like a creative statement to say like Oh, absolutely. This, this can't last. Like, these two are going to, like, take each other out. When it comes down to it, they're not going to have each other's back. Like, yes. eventually we will win the war. Yeah, and I, and I love that, like, you know, Stouffer's kind of like the A bad guy in this movie. We see him a lot more. So I love that he's, like, the principal bad guy, and he's taken out by this other guy who's been kind of lurking in the shadows the whole movie. You might almost think is his henchman. Almost. For, for most of it. Until he kind of pulls that card and is like, I don't work for you. I work for Japan. And then you're like, oh, he doesn't work for him? Right. Damn. <laughs> He does sort of treat Akito with a subservient kind of attitude mm -hmm. up until this point. So in a, in a weird way, I, I think I like seeing this guy who's been disrespected the whole movie finally get one over on his abuser. But at the end of the day, they're both major villains. And so it's cool to see them die together. It, it's got like a lost arc ending to it, right? Where all the bad guys take themselves out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now the clock is ticking and Frank and... Maria are on their way to the airfield. I think he trusts her less than he did before. But there's some really great, like, sort of stunt work here with the, with the car chases. Yeah, we get a car chase. That's great. I love that. That was fun. I love the sped up footage. It just, like, it looks very cool. And at this point, Heiser has assumed control. I forgot to mention that before. When he sees Stouffer and Akito die, he assumes that he is next in line. But what he doesn't realize is that Stouffer has already ordered that he be killed. Yeah, right? that order still stands. Like, he never canceled that. Right. So those guards are still looking for him. Right, so it's like a whole comedy. So he's like in the way. shadows. He's like, now I have the power. And he like runs out of the building. And then as soon as he does, the guards that got knocked out are like, oh my gosh, it's Heiser. Like after yeah. him. 
Nobody got the memo. Yeah. So Heiser is operating as if he's just the guy in charge, but nobody else seems to be aware of that. So they get to the airstrip. The same effect of, of Maria being carried around by an invisible man happens again as they pile into an airplane. They knock over a bunch of, uh, of jet fuel. They knock over a gasoline truck. There's a big fireball, you know, so now things are on fire. There's more chaos in the Nazi airfield. It's so cool. There's such a great establishing shot, too, of the airfield. And yes. It almost reminded me, I don't know how to explain it, but like at the end of Zack Schneider's Dawn of the Dead, when they show like them pulling into the dock, it had like the greatest kind of sense of geography to it, where I was like, wow, that's such a great shot. I can I can see exactly what I need to know about what's happening in mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was some combination of like live action set and either a mat or models, you know, like it looked like a composite, but it it looked like a really good composite. Yeah, and like very well mapped out for the eye to sort of get a good gander in a short period of time. Like, oh, you could see them driving here. They need to get to there, to a plane. And so as they take off in their plane, now keep in mind, Frank doesn't know how to really operate the plane. Maria has been apparently trained to operate an airplane. Oh, oh yeah, apparently. But not only that, to the chagrin of Heiser earlier on right. in that dinner scene where he's like, I can't believe they wasted you by training you on how to shoot a gun, how to ride a horse, how to fly a plane, like yeah. every, like how to crack code. Yeah, yeah. She's gotten like a ton of spy training and now she gets to utilize some of that. This sequence is fantastic. This is where like, so Frank knows that he can't radio in for for help fast enough. His plan here is to try and slow them down as much as possible. So he opens up the Bombay doors. It just like destroys a whole section of this airstrip in the hopes that it'll delay them a few hours. Just rain fire. That was so cool and unexpected. And we get like the the nice effects with the pyro gags and stuff and like see a uh, good perspective on the bomb door and i, oh, I loved it yeah. i was <laughs> i was so happy <laughs> and uh, we got heiser who's like ordering everybody to like shoot down that plane they're getting away there's a british spy on that plane. that was sick with those giant guns and everything and yeah it's i mean it's we got a taste of all this in the beginning like when when frank parachuted in but now it's like all the stops are out you know we get that same sort of stuff but like magnified by five we're getting a much larger version of those of those same effects and i think it's great and then as heiser is trying to shoot them down the the two gestapo officers who've been ordered to kill him finally show up and uh kill him right on the spot that was so sublime that was like the greatest there's like deaths in movies for the last 80 years or whatever that aren't as good as this when it comes <laughs> to mind like i was so, it was so unexpected but it you sh- it's one of those things like you kind of should have seen it coming if you've been like paying close attention but so much has been happening in the final reel of this movie it's hard to keep track of everything but when they show back up and they're just like heiser and he turns around as if to maybe think he's being like congratulated for something and they just <laughs> fucking riddle him with bullets it was like amazing he didn't have even time to react I love that he is dead, not because of anything that he had done. It's just like he is not prepared for that at all. With the inability to radio in to the allies that they are uh, escaping on a, on a Nazi plane, they literally have to just like fly in like under fire and parachute out and hope for the best. And I think like the, the chaos of this scene really works pretty well, keeping the, um, the tension high. And he had fallen asleep again, too, right, if I'm not mistaken. 
That's correct. Plus now he's in he's in his like fighter pilot gear. He really looks like Larry the Negative Man from Doom Patrol. Sequence <laughs> <laughs> like who has spent like a portion of his time that was like his costume or something or his containment suit. Sure. So I was freaking out. I was like, oh wow, I really like this too. Like I wish we got to see him in more clothes. Uh, that sounds weird, I guess. But I want I want like um, you know like a paper doll Invisible Man book now, <laughs> <laughs> dressing him and all kinds of stuff <laughs> might have to make these invisible man paper doll sets and sell them on online right so maria and frank do successfully land on british soil even though the plane is shot down they make contact with one or two of the engines the plane's going down they parachute and land safely well she shoves him out it's kind of awesome it, unintentionally funny i think is like he's he's totally like dead asleep and so she puts the parachute on and she literally just like shoves him out and he falls down and like probably breaks both legs and right yeah he, he, he like yeah he's still sleeping when he hits the ground which I thought was he's still funny. sleeping it's not even like that mission impossible thing where like you wake up in the middle of the free fall and you're like ah i'm in a free fall <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but everybody's okay. And the final like sequence of the movie, we assume, I guess, Maria has, has notified the, the British government of the impending attack because there's literally no mention of the Nazi plans from here on out. Frank is in a hospital bed and he still has like the cold cream and the sunglasses, like that whole look. He is reintroduced to Maria and it's confirmed that she was a British double agent working in Germany and like she's one of the best they have. So now they're reconnecting and, and now... Now that like they've succeeded in their mission, their their love story can flourish. <laughs> oh right, yeah. But like she's wondering, you know, like will you ever be visible again? And he he complains of the itching of the cream on his face. So as she begins to wipe it off, she realizes that he's completely visible again. He takes the sunglasses off and the scarf around his head. And like I love how conveniently we never learn how he became visible again. Mm -hmm. It was like a government secret. Yeah, I like it, but I just wish it wasn't like the last line of the movie where it's like, I love you, darling. I love you too. And then she's like, Will you ever tell me the secret? And he's like, Not on your life. Right. But we have one dangling thread. Right? right he's got to die to become visible or we need a transfusion or, or you know something's got to happen drink more alcohol or less al i don't know what was that <laughs> Right, yeah. No, we're not we're not getting the answer to that. The movie is not interested in in, in getting into the weeds of, of how to bring a man back from invisibility, which is fine. I almost didn't need this scene. I almost just needed like the two of them, I don't know, walking down the aisle. <laughs> like, <laughs> he just comes there and he's like visible and she's like, uh oh. <laughs> like, oh yes. I'll tell you what, if this is the extent of like a romantic subplot in this movie, I'm okay with it. Good call. Excellent call. It's, it's clear from the moment she realizes that he is like a friend, like when they first meet, that she's kind of into him, especially when he like puts the cold cream on and she could see that he's tall and he's handsome, but they don't really get too involved with it, right? Like, so I'm kind of glad that the movie stays on pace. We're here for Nazi secrets and, and so on. But then finally, with the mission over, they get to like have a little bit of fun with it. Like I said, if this is the extent of it, I think it's perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah. And I'll even buy it too because of the experience that they all just like went through together and like, you sure. know, they were in an intense situation and so they've bonded. It's sort of like speed. I don't know how long they're going to be together. I was just going to say. <laughs> You know what they say about relationships that start under extreme circumstances. And so I'm willing to see if they give it a shot. Sure, why not? And, and as I said, it's like pretty early on, like I feel like they didn't really get along great 
throughout the movie because there was other shit to do, you know? Like, we can't really explore this relationship because there's war stuff happening. So, like, stop being mature, stop being so immature, like, get to work, do this, uh-huh. do that. And so, like, yeah, the movie's over. Let's go explore that stuff off screen. <laughs> I think that's a good place to end. There's really nothing left in the movie. They kiss, we fade to black. Is there anything else you want to talk about with Invisible Age? Well, I think we've covered it pretty thoroughly. And I'm just, again, very pleasantly surprised by this one. Now, you know, I would have preferred some kind of monster movie in the classic sense. But if this is what they're going to do, I'm cool with it for some reason. It works for me. I mean, it works way better than the unfortunate last one. It works a little better than the Vincent Price one. Yeah, I just like it. It sticks to this genre really well. Like just the Invisible Man being a spy Mm -hmm. makes perfect sense and like he would be an incredible weapon to have on your side you know so having said that and this and that about all of this movie uh i don't think we'll ever see it in our lifetime but i would love a modern take on the invisible spy on you know on something like this on an invisible agent it would be incredible we got maybe a like a very small tease in that league of extraordinary gentlemen uh film that came out that one time but i think that was sort of the they were sort of pulling from this invisible man to a degree so yeah i love this concept i love the idea again not really a monster movie but okay with it more more or less this time than i thought i would be so very very big surprise very happy yeah i could absolutely see a modern like universal take on this considering the the most recent invisible man was was sort of tech based rather than like an invisible serum so like that suit that adrian creates in in the new invisible man like why wouldn't the government want something like that that seems like the exact sort of thing the government would want to purchase and then mass produce yeah right so i could absolutely see like a modern invisible spy movie i don't know that they'll go in that direction because it doesn't really lend itself to horror and it very much feels like universal wants the monsters to stay horror characters but yeah i i definitely think that it could it could work uh in, in a modern context You know, it's funny, I was just on an episode of Too Fast, Too Forever, which is also on the Cage Club Podcast Network. If you are also a fan of Fast and Furious movies, go check that out. But um, I was just on, the episode will be released by the time this comes out. Uh, I was on to talk about Fast and Furious, the 2009 film, which is the fourth in the franchise. And Joey, or the two Joes, I I should say, asked me, like, because I do this show, which universal monster I thought would best work in a Fast and Furious movie because they are both universal properties. Fast and Furious is also universal. So I thought, hmm, which would it be? And my first thought was Invisible Man. First, because the Invisible Man tends to lean into like the crime world, you know, like the first Invisible Man. Yes, it's science fiction, but he is very interested in committing crime as he is invisible, right? So I thought with Fast and Furious and we got heists, you know, there's a lot of crime happening. So like maybe the Invisible Man plus with the tech aspect, I could definitely see it working. Um, I also said the Wolfman because of, of the sort of, at least within the context of Fast and Furious, because you got two guys who are on either sides of the law. You have that duality of man happening. Plus, I think a werewolf in Fast and Furious would be really fun. <laughs> so I mean, they basically already have a Frankenstein's monster with Dom, so... Well, I, I sort of compared him to Jekyll and Hyde. Oh, okay. I could see that too. With his temper. Yeah, yeah. He hulks out. 
So yeah, that's just a side note. If you guys are into Fast and Furious as well, you can go check out my episode. We get we talk mostly about Fast and Furious, but we do get into some Universal Monster stuff in there as well, of course. But with that, I think it's time for us to disappear. We'll be back on Friday, January 28th with explorers Steve and Babe as they find themselves once again wrapped up in an ancient Egyptian curse in 1942's The Mummy's Tomb. Oh my God, I can't believe they're back. <laughs> they're back. <laughs> In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MonsterMadePod, on Instagram and Facebook at The Monsters That Made Us, and you can email us at TheMonstersThatMadeUs at gmail.com. Please email us and let us know what you think of the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Cologne. Mike, where can listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter at the underscore Mikester, and then you can find all the other shows that I'm involved in over at CageClub.me, Facebook.com slash CageClub, or at CageClubPod on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can do so at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us. You can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. That helps other people discover the show and uh, lets us know um, what you guys think. We can't forget about our t-shirts on TeePublic. You can find the link for that in our aforementioned Twitter and Instagram bio. For all other things Cage Club related, just head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Stay spooky, everybody. Stay spooky, everybody.